You know what time it is. It's time for the Dodcast. 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 So a very common question I get asked from people about the show is where do I find my guests? Well, in this week's episode, I didn't really have to look too far. John Power is Chief Executive and Managing Director of the international medic device company Aerogen, who are the world leaders in aerosolized drug delivery. So a serial entrepreneur in technology and innovation, John, he's, he's worked in novel, various novel sectors, which include the biopharmaceutical, aerospace engineering, and artificial intelligence. Originally, he's a chartered engineer, um, but John is recognized as a technology innovator and has created over a dozen, a dozen commercial in, uh, international patents in products ranging from robotics to life support ventilation. In 2016, he won the coveted prize of Entrepreneur of the Year, in the European Business Awards in Milan and was recognized for his contribution to innovation this century. John was also my next-door neighbor for the first 12 years of my life, and having the chance to sit down with him again and catch up was, was an absolute pleasure. This episode is absolutely full of prizes and is, is really action-packed with stories about how he paved his way in the world after leaving school at 16. He talks about his humble beginnings, working underground, connecting live sewerage pipes by day and then completing an engineering degree by night. Like any successful businessman, you'll always find a way, and John certainly did that, uh, when looking for the next round of funding of one particular venture, he was, he was, he was set. Uh, and he went about designing a, a robot which had the ability to pour a gin and tonic for this banker. After going bust uh, and seriously struggling financially with a really young family, he speaks about how he, he was commissioned to build tanks for Colonel Gaddafi. That, this, that is the original Colonel Gaddafi. And coming up with the idea while sitting on a toilet. These are just some very, very small snippets to the wonderful story that John tells throughout his chat and how this wonderful man essentially paved his way within the world. He truly sees the potential in every human being. And this, was, this has been seen in his most recent venture with Aerogen, touching the lives of over 6 million patients with, uh, with this unique nebulizer device. And for the first time ever, we can now medicate neonates and premature babies through inhalation, thanks to John. He's recently established a sister company, Aerogen Pharma, which pairs this device with surfactant. And this allows for the development of Prem baby's lungs, which couldn't be done before. I, I, I think you're going to absolutely love this one. It's, it's, it really gets me going. Um, I was just so excited listening to the stories that this man had to tell. You can probably hear me throughout getting nearly a little bit too excited, but uh, this is an ordinary man telling an extraordinary tell in his own words about his life. Folks, again, please like, subscribe and, and, and share this episode with a friend if you found it impactful. I know that you were reaching out and looking for something along these lines. So let me know what you think. And again, thank you, thank you, thank you for your continued support. Uh, I hope you enjoy this one. So this is episode 25, Embracing the Ambiguity of Life. Sitting here today in sunny Galway with uh, the man himself, Mr. John Power. Uh, entrepreneur, uh, serial entrepreneur, could you say, uh, CEO and uh, general command of Aerogen. John, welcome to the show. Hi, Dennis. Good how, to see you again. How are you doing? Great, great. 
You're very, very welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time out to, to chat to me on the, the podcast today. Yeah. John, we're going to take it all the way back for a second, kind of just where it all started for you. But actually, do you know, before before we do that, can we, just in your own very, very simple words, can you describe to the listeners like who you are, what you're about as a person? Yeah, well, I, you know, it's a, I guess I, I, it, professionally I'd normally say I'm an engineer, you know, a design, engin- a design engineer or an innovator. Um, you know, the, the um, thing is I left school at 16, uh, I did my engineering through night school and, you know, I trained as a draftsman on drawing boards before computers were there for CAD systems or anything. So I got a good grounding in engineering from the sort of factory floor up. And um, I've always been someone that would be inquisitive about how anything worked. And, uh, you know, to the point of pulling things apart when I was younger, I, yeah. I ended up breaking loads of things because I couldn't get them <laughs> back together again. But... but um, so designing things, and look, and I think what was fortunate, I've always had a, a bit of an eye for gaps, you know. So if something doesn't, why does it, why is it doing it that way? Wouldn't there be a better way f- to do that? So I, I, I can't sit anywhere. Like if I'm at an airport, I spend my time in the airport looking around the structure and thinking, okay. why did they build it like that? Why do you need to do it that way? Why wouldn't they have done this? You know, it's, it's just... Uh, yeah, and I think I always liked work as well, you see. I was working out in the buildings when I was 15, you know, at weekends, and I always liked earning money. Mm. So, um, you know, the idea of from once I was 16, I, I pretty much became independent. You know, I never had money off my parents again from, from there on. Um, you know, I lived at home while I was doing my training, but that was the end of it. So I, I liked that idea of being an independent person and earning your um, way in in the world uh, so never really particularly looking for anyone to give you anything yeah uh, you know do it is ha- have a crack at doing it yourself uh, and you know there's always ways you can you know even when things aren't going well in business I was working at nights as well as holding down trying to hold something down during the day and you know, just to make the money come in to pay the bills and what have you. Were you ever bitter about that, that you felt as though no. you have been given a short end of the straw? Oh, no, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, you know, self-pity is the worst thing you can ever get into, you know. Uh, moaning about things is terrible. I, I mean, when I've said to Bernadette, my wife, if ever I got a, a chance to have a one, you know, where they have a day for Father's Day, a day for Mother's Day, a day for this... I'd give I'd give a day in Ireland for no moaning, right? <laughs> yeah. But you didn't. Feckin, or the best moaners. <laughs> yeah, you didn't fucking moan about anything. It's just um, it would do people a world of good. People get become serial moaners. They just yeah, can't yeah. help it. You know, they can, you, you you have five minutes conversation with them and they're moaning about something or other, and you think, geez, it's just no such a wasted energy. What do you think that's about? Is is that something in the Irish psyche? I don't know whether it's just Ireland, to be honest. It's everywhere you go, the same things. I mean, it's funny, you know, sometimes in the... It, well, I don't know. I haven't travelled as much around the um, the Far East, but, you know, you see where people are, are often in quite humble surroundings and what have you, but they don't seem to moan as much. Yeah. I don't know whether it's because our exposure to... Um, wealth in the west and everything yes, is yeah, yeah. That, that people always constantly think there must be something better 
you know, there's got to be better than what I am now or what I'm doing now. And there's a sort of sense of maybe, you know, becomes dissatisfaction with things, mm. which, you know, you can get over it. You can, you can, you know, I used to be, I worked, as I say, in the buildings and in between jobs with construction in my dad's family, you know, down in the sewers, live sewerage, you know, connecting up pipes while live sewerage was still going through them. You think that's a pretty shitty job, literally, <laughs> literally right? Literally. Uh, and yet, you know, you could have great crack and you make the best of it, you know, and you're getting a wage at the end of the day and you enjoy a few pints and a laugh and it's the the right way to be. Well, speaking about better or discover better even, (laughs) where did it all start, uh, the Aerogen journey? Aerogen started, uh, uh, you know, I'd I'd worked... um, like I say, I left school early and trained as a draftsman, got my engineering qualifications, and then I... I, um, uh, Went working. Um, for, I think it was it was just pure chance. I did a course in um, robotics and automation systems, and um, I. Uh, Where was that now? That was in Chesterfield, in um, up in sort of um, north of England, up north, you know, Coronation Street sort of country. <laughs> um, real, real strange for a London boy going up there. It was. It was a real <laughs> shock to the system. But um, anyhow, I did that course, and then I, I came out for it back to London and. Um, a job came up in a, um, uh, I seen a, a job being advertised in the paper as you used to in them days. Mm. And it was, um, but it was the, the name of the company that really got me. It was a company called the Original Android Company, which I thought was just fantastic. Imagine working for the Original Android Company. And so I got a job in there as a junior engineer and it was a company that was the first startup business that I'd ever worked in. I'd worked in sort of established big businesses, multi, I'd worked in Petrochem and aerospace and different areas that were big companies. Mm -hmm. So this was a real ground up. I was in fact the first engineering person they employed. And um, it was um, what we would call today, you know, a venture capital funded startup. But back in them days, you know, venture capital wasn't there. It was only the, you know, companies were funded normally um you know technology the idea of technology small technology companies starting up wasn't a, a big thing in them days it was normally done by the large multinationals okay and so this was a company and and, and robotics it was really at the time to put it in perspective it was at the time when the pcs were only just coming out yes you know you might have one pc in an office that everybody would share and that sort of way but the sort of forward thinkers were, were were predicting that you know obviously computer um, era was going to was going to revolutionise work and then the robotics uh, were going to come after that that you know we would have robots doing everything and basically you wouldn't need to go to work anymore in a few years time the mm-hmm. robots would handle them now of course the technology wasn't there for the robots mm-hmm. at that time so this company were way ahead of the curve in terms of their thinking mm-hmm. but the technology to apply to put that to action you see only now really you're getting more of a you know robotic receptionists in hotels in in uh, Japan and things like this and robotic um, nursing uh, yeah. companions yeah. and stuff like that so it's coming that robotic age is coming but back then this is like um god this is 35 years ago it definitely wasn't there and did that ignite a spark in you that was really the that was really 
the exposure to a completely different way of working. I mean, I, when I started work at 16, it was the, the, the place where I worked had a factory floor and it was real old school factory yeah. management. And I mean, there used to be a guy who used to sit and an old boy who was retired and he had a little book and he'd mark when people went to the bathroom. No uh, yeah, and how long Talk they were. HR, yeah. Huh? yeah, so it was, um, you know, this was how factories were run back then. So, um, uh, so very old school in that way. And um, so going into this company, it was formed by an American guy and the guy who partnered him was a guy called Tim Jones who who worked for a guy called Clive Sinclair, who you wouldn't know unless you were a sort of techie historian. But um, Sinclair was the guy who, who uh, developed the first home computer, ZX Spectrum, that people could buy, you know, and, and um, he invented the first electric car and never became a success. But he was one of these guys. He was a great British inventor. Yeah but never could really get the commercialization yeah. side of it right. But Tim worked for him on, on stuff, and Tim fought, had a company where he was designing Androids for displays and things so that they would use balloons for muscles and wires and pneumatics. Okay. And then um, Jeff Henney, the guy from the States, came over and formed a team in, in London where he brought some of the best brains in, in the States and the US, or sorry, the States and Europe together to work on artificial intelligence and robotics. And so I'm a young engineer and I get a job in this What place. age were you at this stage, John? Uh, I'd have been 22, 23. I was engaged um, to get married at that stage. So... Um, and were you just kind of in an awe or kind of starstruck by it, the likes well, of... Well, it was just peculiar. I mean, I started, as I say, I was one of the first engineers that started there. And um, then they started hiring in all these AI guys came in. And, you know, I didn't know what software engineers were really at the time. And, you know, they're, they're at best a bit strange software dudes, you know, compared to other engineers. Yeah. You know, they have a different way. When you see guys laughing at the computer screen and stuff like that, that they're looking at code, yeah. you know, and they think something. But, but no, seriously, they're not having a go at all software engineers. They're, they're, but but they're, they're kind of a different mindset in many ways. But uh, seeing these guys, you know, practicing yoga, you walk in from lunch and a fellow would be standing on his head in the, in the <laughs> office. You know, that wouldn't be something I'd have been used to, you know. But but um, they, they, it was a, it was my first exposure to startup, and it, it really did ignite, you know, that that wish to start being business myself. And I'll tell you one funny story on the finance side of it. So I'd never been involved in raising finance for a business or anything like that. Uh, and as I say, in them days, there wasn't the venture capital market. So the the people who funded um, companies were. Um, uh, generally the merchant banks of the city, you know. So um, myself and Tim were working on this um, presentation for the merchant, this bank who were coming out. They'd given us some early money and they were coming out to see about next round of finance. And um, uh, we prepared this presentation and we'd spent ages working on it all weekend to get it right. And uh, this guy came into the office and, and I was sitting there and, couple of the other guys and Tim was presenting it and um, this guy was your typical how you'd picture a London banker you know the three-piece suit and the red hanky and you know <laughs> yeah. the crocodile shoes and sort of rolled in and sat down had a cup of tea and all this very nice sort of guy and um, 
Tim started presenting away, you know, and talking about the information bus and the processor speed and all the battery capacity and all this sort of thing. And um, your man said, um, after a few minutes, um, Timothy, old chap, he said, uh, um, he says, frightfully sorry, but I, he says, all sounds riveting, but I haven't got a clue what you're talking about. <laughs> and so we're there like, oh. Uh, and so uh, he says, and he looked at his watch because he was in a hurry somewhere, obviously. And he says, look, I'll tell you what. He says, I'll come back in a fortnight. And we had the prototype robot, you know. And he says, if you can get that thing to pour me a gin and tonic, I'll give you the next round of finance. <laughs> and I swear to God... We dropped everything for two weeks to teach this robot how to come in. <laughs> it was a mobile robot coming into a room, use triangulation, vision system, come to a docking station. No and we way. had a bottle of Boost gin with an optic on the top. No and poured, Honest to God, poured this guy the gin and tonic. He drank the gin and tonic, said super job, and wrote out a check for the next <laughs> round of financing. And that's exactly, no way. Yeah, exactly that's how brilliant. that's how it was done back then. It was a Fantastic. world of difference yeah, yeah, yeah. to now. But but tell me your, your journey then to Puritan Bennett, then where you got into the health si- healthcare yeah, yeah. side of things. Well, that was um, going to Puritan Bennett uh, was me going back inside as I used to think it, back inside a multinational, you know, mm. I, I, I'd Because you had your time in yeah. startup and then I you had my time across. in startup. I'd got involved then in a, um, uh, after that, I set up a business in automation, designing automation equipment with Tim because we'd left the company. They got it sold yeah. off to an Americans or something. And um, we, we, we were involved in that. And then there was a project I took on for an aerospace technology that we developed uh, and I was going to bring it to Knock Airport, and that's when we would have, you know, known your parents. Um, I'd uh, so I was looking for a way to move back to Ireland. You know, my parents were Galway people, yeah. uh, and I'd been back in Galway every year of my life. And really, we, I was married at this stage, and we had two kids. And I was thinking, you know what? Um, it'd be great. And Bernadette, my wife, agreed. We we both wanted to bring the kids up in Ireland. So I was looking for a, a mechanism to get back. Now, Ireland back in them days, sort of 30 years ago, there wasn't a hell of a lot going on. And, you know, the opportunities were very rare. So I figured I had to bring something back to Ireland to set up. And we were looking at this aerospace project for Knock Airport. Um, and it was kind of an interesting one. It was for reducing the structures of internal uh, structures of cockpits. Um, we got a technology from NASA and developed it further. And it was really um, state-of-the-art you know, stuff. But unfortunately, um, as we were getting it up and going and everybody loved it and there was a big push on on aerospace in Ireland and government wanted to back it and we had like, IDA wanted to put money in and we had independent investors lined up and then Guinness PT Aviation were, were the, owned by uh, Tony Ryan who's the founder of Ryanair yes. GPA were the biggest aircraft leasing company in the world at that stage uh, privately owned um, and um, they went to go public and um, this is nothing to do with what I was doing but they were going public at the time we were right in the middle of closing all the financing and um, the public offering collapsed because nobody believed the story really that when, once the analysts came in, they wouldn't believe the story that personal air travel was going to take off to no the way. level it did, yeah. So they did, and you see, the whole thing in aircraft leasing is 
you forward buy planes on the basis you'll be able to lease them out. But what you don't want to do is look to buy a plane next month because you'll pay the highest price possible. So what you do is you place orders like three and five years in advance. And then, you know, you, you rely on the fact that you will then lease those aircraft as they're coming through to pay down the debt on buying the aircraft. Yeah. But you're buying them at much cheaper rates than, than you know, than you would otherwise. Yeah. So that's the business model of aircraft leasing. And, and he had sussed this out. And um, he, but at the time... When he went to go public, I believe they had more aircraft on order than the entire U.S. civil and military air fleet. So he'd seen they'd seen that there was going to be a huge takeoff mm. in um, in in personal air travel and that would increase the need for aircraft. But anyhow, the analysts, when they seen the amount of debt that was involved, because you have to buy loads of, of these, pay, just got nervous and basically said it wasn't sustainable and the whole offering collapsed and they then the banks once it collapsed and the banks get nervous and yeah, they want their yeah, money of course, back of course. and so um that's what happens in business and uh, next thing gpa was going under uh, and uh, it got bought by ge the big general electric yeah and now general electric are the largest aircraft leasing company in the world so it was just bad luck bad timing bad timing but the impact on us, which is it was a great lesson in life, even although you might be doing something, working away on something brilliantly on, you know, very sound business model, everything on your own. When markets change, you can't beat, as you hear, you can't beat the market. You can't change the market. So the sentiment went completely from aerospace because these guys had loads of forward orders on Boeing and Airbus Industries. They were their biggest customer, and suddenly they're going bust. And so all the money that had been going into aerospace suddenly got pulled yeah. by the markets, and all the aerospace stocks took a dive, which meant aeros aeros aircraft companies weren't funding new technologies or buying in new stuff. And so basically within a matter of weeks, our venture went from looking like it was the, one sure of the best thing sure things ever to no money, couldn't fund it. And um, But I am seeing a bit of a, uh, a link here between the forward thinking that you had. You're talking about artificial intelligence. You're yeah. talking about aerospace engineering, which has obviously taken off with yeah, the likes yeah, of yeah. Ryanair, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. which now kind of very nicely brings us to the fantastic device that uh, that is uh, Aerogen. Yes. So so just yes. Yeah, so Aerogen came about because, as you say, when that aerospace project failed, um, I was basically um, bust. You know, I had, I put everything, all the money I, I I'd got together at that time into um, the project, and when it failed, uh, I had nothing, and I spent. Uh, you know, I had to wrap up the company. Um, and try and pay off the debts, uh, and basically it left us uh, penniless. What? Yeah, I, I mean, young family. Oh yeah, it was. It was. It was not. It was tough times. I mean, I used to. Um, I used to uh, thinking back on it, you know, and really it was so bad. I'll tell you how bad it got. We we took or I took a loan out for. Um, there was a, this thing, I think it was called Premier Direct. They were the first people that ever did sort of um, over-the-phone 
uh, loans. Like, like a loan share. Yeah, for like a bank loan thing. <laughs> yeah. But um, uh, I got five grand, I remember, off it for, a, for an extension on the house uh, that I, I never had any intention of putting up. I, I needed the five grand to keep paying off the bank who were going to come in and take the house off us no otherwise. Way. So it was real, real touch and go. And um, like we really got to the point in the house. I, at that time, there were three kids under five. And um, we got to the point where there wasn't, a, like literally when you went in the fridge, there wasn't food in the fridge. We were getting to a point of really bad. And as I told you before, I was then, what would I have been, 30... 30 early 30s and I told you before I'd been independent since I was 16 and yes. never borrowed any money off my family and, and I was really if my parents or Bernadette's parents had known the situation we were in they would of course given us money but um it was so desperate I didn't I, but I didn't want to ask my parents for money but I was getting to the point where I was gonna have to and then I got a job for um, a no foul, no fee again to design tanks for Colonel Gaddafi. Now, now, <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. Now, they were irrigation <laughs> tanks, not... Oh, okay. not yeah, but, I, but... So, anyhow, there's a big uh, Irish civil engineering company had put in these irrigation tanks. Colonel Gaddafi, you know, he's obviously <laughs> got a bad rap. And, uh, you know, he was a bit of a loony in the end. But in the early days, he was um, very socialist minded. And, you know, what he did in his country, you know, in terms of health care for everybody, education for everybody, it, it was way different than any of the other people in that region were doing. Um, but then he, like all things, kind of power got yeah, to his yeah. head and, you know, and all absolute that. Absolute power yeah, crops, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. Uh, he was a classic of that. But anyhow, back in those days when he was doing a bit of good, he, he, they, they discovered this massive uh, lake of fresh water way out into the middle of the desert. Um, and, you know, obviously in all these sort of countries, the, the, um, most of the people live around the coast. Mm -hmm. And so he had to pipe this fresh water to all the towns and villages. And they use like substations of tanks holding of water and then they pump it from there to smaller tanks. This Irish company had got the job of putting these tanks in the villages all around Libya. Uh, and they were big steel tanks, you know, like a big room, but, but steel round tank. Uh, that would, and they had a big um, shut-off uh, valve go on them and they'd open the valve up and, you know, all the water would pour in and fill the reservoir or this, these tanks and then they'd shut it off. But the problem was all the silt from this sort of prehistoric lake would um, come along through the pipes and would they fill in the with the water and then all the tanks would start filling with silt and people would have to go in and get ladders and get buckets and yeah. try and bucketing this stuff out so these guys had built the tanks and they needed a fix for this and so i um i got introduced to them and they i'd never done civil engineering other than um digging holes with a shovel you know on the building sites but um uh, they said you know we've got to do this design something that can retrofit these um tanks it's got to be fixable in the field and all this sort of thing and so i said yeah i could do that and um i talked them into it anyhow but it was no foal no fee so i wasn't going to get anything unless i i it worked and i remember i designed this thing i got home and i was thinking how the hell am i going to design this i haven't got a clue you know and um 
I was thinking away about it and I was in the bathroom, to be honest, and uh, I flushed the toilet. Then I thought to myself, hang on a second now, as the tank was filling up, I think, that's what I need to do. I need to put a cistrine with the filter inside the bigger tank. And so um, that's what I did. I designed this retrofitable tank about, uh, about six foot long uh, that would fit into these huge tanks um, so that the water would first come in there and inside that it had a filter plate Brilliant. and a big ball cock like you'd see in yeah, the yeah, stream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it would cut, you didn't need any more to go up the ladder and turn the valve on and off. The ball cock would balance it and then the water would have to pass through a filter from the water coming in. So the silt would be contained within this yes. six foot and then they could daily go up and just empty that rather than having to empty a big tank. So anyhow, I got it designed uh, designed on a CAD station that, that, that I had an old IBM AT and I paid like, I think, two quid or three quid for a, for a real cheap CAD package and got it um, uh, built, designed it, got it built down in Inverin by IDT um, and uh, shipped off to um, Tripoli for, for <laughs> testing. And so just went... All the money had run out, and I really was at the point of having to go and t- talk to the parents. Um, the, I always say the cheque came in from Colonel Gaddafi. Now, it wasn't Colonel Gaddafi, but it was effectively their Ministry of Agriculture or whatever. And um, this cheque popped through, and it basically saved the day. So I, we, we were back in the money, paid off the bills, da-da-da-da-da. And um, But Bernadette said to me, she said, John, you've got to go and get a proper job now, <laughs> okay, you know because okay, okay. I, I, I've it's, been it's, at the, it's, it's, it's time it's uh, the days of uh, getting uh, signed yeah. off by uh, dictators is all uh, gone uh, then. exactly <laughs> so that so like um, and I figured you know what maybe I needed to go back inside into a multinational for a while and just sort of chill and okay. uh, you know we, we we literally had been at the pin of our collars I used to say to the people I, I used to pretend how bad it got I used to pretend I was going to sleep at night so that Bernadette would think I was asleep. So she'd go to sleep and then I'd lie awake thinking about what I'm going to do to get out of the mess. And then I'd wait until the first clink of light would come through the um, curtains to get up because she'd say, why are you getting up so early? You've hardly been in bed, you know. And I'd say, oh, well, it's daylight, you know. You gotta... So it was really... Um, wow. It, yeah, it was just, you know, you're at the bottom of the barrel, you've got three little babies pretty much in the house and you've got to somehow find your way out of it right um but anyhow that that the only thing that teaches you is how far down you can go and you can survive and really from then on I never worried you know from that day on with business yeah sure there was ups and downs but you know um I kind of figured you know I can go to the bottom and get out uh, because I decided to join Puritan Bell I never worked in medical and I joined them because um, I decided that was the next industry sector that was moving. You know, the computer industry had had its day in some extent. The aerospace had definitely had its day <laughs> in Ireland. Uh, and so medtech was the next sector that seemed to be moving. And I thought, right, I know nothing about medtech. Better go inside for a year or two, find out about how that industry works and then go out and dis- all the time. So think that was start- always the plan? Oh, it was always. I'd go in, figure it out, and then go and set up a business okay, in that spe- you know, space. Right. Makes sense. Um, and, and, and so I stayed a bit longer than I intended because we ended up designing a new life support ventilator, ICU ventilator, which is a 
incredible piece of kit. Um, and it really does what it says on the tin, keep someone alive. And, you know, it was uh, so you couldn't walk out halfway through a project like that. You had to see that to the end. Um, and really, it was in developing that project and or product, I used to spend a lot of time. I always found that I wanted to be out with, with commercial people. So although I was design engineer, I wanted to be out in the field always in every industry I worked in to find out what people really want. What I didn't want is someone coming back telling me what people needed. Can you do this? Because this is what... You wanted to find out I yourself. I wanted to see myself and understand what the problem was and try and figure what the I'm, right I'm solution... I'm getting flashbacks to when you were sitting in the airport. You wanted yeah, to find out yourself. Exactly. It's kind of... It, it, it's because often it gets lost in translation. What you, what you hear back from someone from the field is their interpretation yeah, of what they think the issue is, which you can take on board, but it's nice to see the problem yourself. Absolutely. So anyhow, um, uh, I worked there for, and then I, I, I realised aerosol drug delivery. These ventilators, seriously, there are very few part pieces of kit in a hospital that are more sophisticated, more critical than a life support ventilator because literally if a ventilator fails, the patient can die. Mm. And, and um, so... Huge amount goes into them, and I just got amazed. Right at the end of the project, they were talking about drug delivery. And um, so people thought that at the time, the marketing people at the time, when the product was being developed, that um, MDIs or puffers, you know, like the, the, the dry powders or MDIs, they thought they were going to take over on ventilated patients and you wouldn't need nebulization anymore. And, and so I knew nothing about aerosol drug delivery whatsoever I knew about engineering design the ventilator but um, right at the end they came to me and they said guys we've got six months before these products this product is launched and we need to have a nebulizer because we found out the limit that that dry these um, MDIs and dry powders don't work very well with ventilated circuits because you think if someone's got a vent on a ventilator, they've got an intubated generally, a tube down into the bifurcation point of the lung, and the, the gas has been pumped down a wet, moist circuit. And you, if you open that circuit up and fire an MDI, anyone who's taken an MDI for asthma or whatever knows you've got a trigger when you fire, you've got to inhale at the same time, at, yeah. at the same time because it comes out at 30 meters per second velocity. So, you know, even if you're very good at it, you probably get a load of it at the back of your throat and you taste the yeah. drug. So you try squirting that into a wet, moist breathing circuit impossible. and get it timing right. It's almost impossible. So anyhow, they said, John, you need to go off and find us something that will work for ventilation, uh, for drug delivery on the ventilator. So I did a bit of a scour around America and Europe to see what was available and I started delving into what, what methods there were and technologies could be used. And that's where the where it came to me, really, that there aren't any good methods. Like the methods of delivering um, drugs to ventilated patients in those days, you'd get maximum amount of the drug you would get into the patient's lung was about 3% for an adult and less than 1% for a child. So hugely inefficient. And you see these technologies were developed in the 1950s and you think, here are these ventilators, that state-of-the-art piece of equipment in a hospital, mass chop a block full of technology, and they're using some 1950s um, design product, you know, for the drug delivery. And when someone's in an ICU, 
and they're, they're on life support ventilation, the three things that will, the, their outcome will depend on three things. Number one, it will always be the caregivers, the doctors, the nursing staff, how, how, how good they are. Number two will be the equipment, the ventilator that they're on. And number three will be the drug regime that yeah. they're treated with. And I'm looking at this and I'm saying, you know, 40% people in ICUs are there because of respiratory conditions. So those people on ventilators with respiratory conditions, the drugs have been pumped in through IV into their vascular system mm -hmm. to get to the lung, which is crazy, right? If you stand back and think of it, you know, why, we, why do you take a, a drug into the vein to affect an infection <laughs> of the lung? You know, But you can just breathe it. Yeah. It was only because there really weren't any good methods of aerosol delivery into the lung at that time that were accurate enough and repeatable enough. So that was the aha moment for me. I thought, that's it. That's what I'm going to develop, the world's best aerosol drug delivery system for ventilated patients. And then when I found out that when I did more research, I found out they had no way of delivering to neonates at all at that time. So I thought, that, that's terrible, you know. Uh, because neonates' breath is so small, and the and the amount of gas required to drive a normal compressor nebulizer is bigger than the volume of the baby's lungs, yeah. so you, you know it's no point. Um, so anyhow, that was really the the idea behind Aerogen and developing the product that we now know as Aerogen Solo, and you know we we I think there's seven million patients now around the world being treated with the patient amazing. with the product we developed Absolutely from that amazing yeah <laughs> but interesting love we've we've taken a bit of a jump in the story uh with regards to origin and kind of what has has gone on from a company that started on top of a butcher shop in mm. the west of ireland to to origin where we have today yeah um Take us a little bit through, as, as succinctly as you can, through kind of where it started, the buy-in, the buy-out, yeah, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, and the learnings within that journey. Oh, okay, so I guess where all good companies start is with an idea. So I told you where I'd come, where the idea of generation had come from. It was really a gap in the market. Mm -hmm. um, I think, uh, uh, you know, I said to you before, Dennis, the, the, to me, it was... That's one of the areas when people say, how do you come up with new ideas for products? And I think often there's a space where there's a, um, where there's a mismatch of technology. And for me, it was when I seen the drug delivery on ventilators was so poor, it was like the best way to describe it is if you were going out and buying a top of the range BMW or Mercedes and you got in your brand new sparkling car and it had a transistor radio in it. You know, that's the mismatch. Some, somewhere the development has been done for, for the rest of the product, but the, the radio is, is still not being moved forward. And that's the way it was with drug delivery. But outside that, John, in terms of the actual company, there, there's been a, a number of people and one person who kind of keeps cropping up, and I, I don't mean to jump ahead of the story, mm. and please excuse me if I do, Dr. Jane Shaw. Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. Well, well, here you go then. So... I thought, right, I, I'll have to, I, I set up the business, um, I left PB, um, it was at a time they were transitioning anyhow, they wanted me to move out to um, head up R&D out in, um, Mech R&D out in um, uh, California, um, but it, you know, it wasn't really, we had five kids, it wasn't 
what we were going to do, although I was kind of tempted because I thought I'd get good ideas out there as well in the headquarters. But um, anyhow, I set up the business in my Cullen uh, pub to butcher shop, as you say, and uh, I was doing consultancy design work for Puritan Bennett, and I did some for um, Abbott and a bit for um, um, Sherwood Medical that's now part of uh, Medtronic. So I was doing consultancy design work on anything to do with moving fluids or gases, enteral feed systems, um, tracheal gas insufflation, any, anything that moved gas or fluid. And um, what I was doing was using the money I was making from these um, companies to do my own in-house development um, because I didn't go, want to go out and have to raise money. I was funding it myself. Um, and then um, uh, one of my old colleagues from California um, contacted me and he said, John, he said, he knew what I was doing, you know, the drug delivery side. And he said, John, you're still working on that drug delivery? I said, yeah, yeah. And he said, you know, there's a company that's early stage company out here in Sunnyvale, out in Silicon Valley, uh, that I heard about that got some neat technology they're trying to convert, which was a technology for micro combustion engines um, into drug delivery. And so I got, he said, you know, he gave me the details and I got talking to the, uh, Ehud Every, who was the um, chief technical officer um, and Ehud had been working on combustion engines. He'd worked on inkjet printers and then was working on combustion engines. And, you know, something that combustion engine, you want to get good mix of gas and air. So he was spraying the fuel and getting good concentration mix of gas around it. Uh, he got converted towards trying to spray drugs by the venture capital world. Um, and I went over and uh, met him, he invited me over, saw what they were doing. Very, very early stage stuff. And I thought, you know what, within, I would say within 10 seconds of seeing the product, I knew I had, I could make, turn it into a perfect solution for what I wanted, which was for ventilation. Um, and so I said, you know what, you guys, they weren't interested in anything like that. They were looking at uh, insulin delivery. So yeah. inhaled insulin rather than injecting insulin, which is another great um, achievement still to come. But anyhow, I seen the technology and I thought, right, this is what this is really it. So um, I tried to get the license off them. But the CEO at the time was a real sort of Silicon Valley boyo and, um, you know, finance guy. And he was like, well, let me get this right. You've got no money. You've got an office above a butcher shop <laughs> in the west coast of Ireland and you want me to license you this technology. <laughs> he's what you know, you, you must be joking kind of thing. And it was pretty much that conversation. It was and you hard to blame him. All he could see, you know, in me was risk. You know, this was because if I something went wrong with what I was doing, it might have a negative impact on their stuff. So he was no way am I doing this. And so um I went back, to, flew back to Ireland, sort of disheartened over this. But I, and I was working away on the other technology, and it kept in my mind that this wasn't what I was doing. This was the better solution. I could manipulate this other technology. And um, then Ehud rang me back, and he said, "Hey, John, I've got good news." Um, and I said, "What's that?" He said, "Your man's got the sack, uh, and they've brought a new CEO in, and I've explained to her what you're doing." And uh, she really likes the idea of it and uh, wants to see you. And I thought, oh, great. It's off on a plane again across to California. And I met, that's where I met Jane Shaw. Um, and um, 
within, I'd say, five minutes of um, explaining how I wanted to bring the technology into life support and ventilated patients in the ICU and prem babies and, you know, five minutes she had her hand across the table said look we'll, we'll do the deal we'll figure out how it works financially I down the road she, she gave you a blank check was that was that no no not no she gave me no money she gave but she gave me the 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 license without having to pay any money up front which normally you wouldn't get you know normally you'd have to pay for a license fee uh, but she said we'll work it out back end it you know on royalties and what have you but then we carried on working on the technology in Ireland. Uh, the, I had a small team, about four people at that time, but good engineers. We were working on the technology and um, started advancing it better than they were really doing in truth in, in California. And Jane sort of, um, within, I suppose, about six or seven months said, you know, why don't you guys come and join us and we'll merge the companies together. So that's what we did. And so we became Aerogen Ireland. Um, and uh, then within a very short time of that, uh, the markets were really fluctuating in the States, and um, uh, Jane said, you know what, I think we should bring the company public. Uh, they were thinking about doing it in a sort of a year or so time after that. She said, I think we should go out now, and we did it. We did the roadshow, and I did the roadshow with Jane on around to all the finance houses around Europe and America, and... Uh, the money was raised. I think the company got valued at three hundred million or something, and we IPO'd. Um, which on, on Nasdaq. On Nasdaq, which was fantastic. Full, fully subscribed IPO. Everything looked great. And then I'd say within probably a week of us going public, the dot com bubble happened, um, and there was a massive crash in the stock markets. Dot, dot com was like pretty much like what apps are today. You know, there was a lot of money going into them and many of them were just failing. You know, they had okay. no real long-term business model. And um, But uh, it was a major crash, the biggest crash the um, markets had seen since probably the 30s. Um, and uh, the Nasdaq went from at trading at over 5,000 points down to 1,000 within the within about a year, I think. So any companies that had uh, long-term return on investments got canned. So it was companies that any company, you see, if the model had been a lot of people would put money into dot-com based on these companies weren't making any money, but they were talking about future making money, you know. And... um, what happened once, uh, nothing to do with biotech, but the whole biotech model is based around long term. You can't get a drug like insulin on the market quickly. You have to do seven, eight years clinical work At and least. trials to get a product approved. So all that time you're not making money. And so you have to keep getting funded through that. And that market went. So no one wanted to fund biotech. So the biotech industry took a dive alongside com. Okay, and so, um, so anyhow, Aerogen went on continual, like from being a, within a weeks of, of being this high-flying business, it suddenly the price kept falling of the stock. And eventually in 2005, um, we went public in 2000, 2005, there was a hostile takeover by Nectar Therapeutics, who were a competitor of Aerogen's, really. 
uh, um, but much better financed, and they bought Aerogen um, basically to take the insulin product off the market because mm. they had their own product, uh, and it was seen as a competitive product. Um, <clears throat> and so uh, I found myself at that time having gone through all the years of setting up the business, doing all the development work we'd been doing on bringing the first product to market, suddenly owned by this pharmaceutics company in California. And, uh, of course, that wasn't what I wanted. I wanted to be doing my own stuff. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, we had a program we were running. I went to see them, and uh, I basically I told them I was going to be leaving, uh, but I wanted to keep the Irish operation you know, that they'd see value in it. Um, and I talked to them about the projects we were working on and they said, look, there's one of those that we're interested in. Um, and really, I was quite fortunate. The COO at the time was a new guy who'd come in there and we got on very well. Uh, and um, he said, look, if um, this could be worth money, this programme, um, but we need you to be working on it because you, you know, done a lot of the work on this and... Um, I said, well, fair enough, but, you know, if I do that and you can get it, you know, spin it out and get money in behind it, I'd like to have the chance of buying my original business back out. And so that was the deal. And two years later, that's what happened. Okay, good. They, they did a deal on it where they made a huge amount of money. Uh, and um, in return, I got to buy the business back. So I went out and raised money from scratch again. Uh, and put my own money in again and basically bought back the old part of the business that I had been involved in. Um, and it's, it's, it's funny because for those who are listening, John, uh, John has been my, my next-door neighbour for, for a number of years, uh, the early years of my life, for the first 12, 13 years, and I still remember uh, <laughs> very, very well you coming across with your very first prototypes. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and showing your mum. That's showing your <laughs> mum because that your 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 mum was uh, of course running the cystic fibrosis right. uh, unit there in Galway, and um, Neve was fascinated by it all. Yeah, so uh, no, that's right. Yeah, and 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 she she uh, John was coming out with these uh, aerosolized devices, which uh, and saying breathe this in there. Yeah, and- see what that's like. How <laughs> how does that feel? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Look, like I I did have my, my own kids were also we had our own little. Um, <laughs> Well, between, testing centre. Yeah, we had seven kids that we were testing these devices on all the time, so uh, it was brilliant. What, what, what stage did you kind of realise there was massive potential in this product that you just created? Uh, I think really going all the way back to the beginning, I knew there was a huge. I knew there was a huge gap in the markets, and I knew that I could make this technology into a product that would and did, fill did, that did gap. you just did you just back your own ability you you, oh, kind yeah. of, you never took no for an answer essentially oh yeah no I, I mean you know if it was if I was doing something um but you know there's a big part of it is the area you're working you know if I was working in designing um, you know I don't know uh, out of factory designing paper bags or widgets or something I, I'd find it hard to have the same passion you know, the passion is that I knew that there were people out there that were in ICUs all over the world that were getting suboptimal care because of the way yeah. drugs were being delivered. And I believed I could deliver a solution to that problem. Uh, and so if you say backing yourself, that's what it was. Um, 
but it certainly gives you a, an extra edge to get up in the morning when you go into a hospital and you see people in ICUs, when you see babies being, you know, intubated and um, instilled drugs rather than aerosolized, and you just realise that you can make a, a, a huge... I mean, how many chances do you get in your life to, to make such an impact, you know? Um, so do, I couldn't give up on it, you know, I... I you know, it was, but I still believed I could make it work financially. You know, so um, uh, so anyhow, I went out, raised the money again to to buy back what I'd already been doing, and um, uh, I did an LBO, so I leveraged most of the debt back on the company I was buying, um, and brought in some investors, and then kicked on from there. But the thing I I determined. The first year I had the business back, I was not going to borrow any money from anybody after that. The company would have to stand on its own feet. So we would only do what we could afford to do year on year, that we weren't going to go off to banks and we weren't going to go off to venture and bring in money and have debt hanging over us. Um, or, you, or, having, ha- or having... Um, lose control of the business that's what happened the first time you see i lost control once i merged Mm. so now i was thinking this time whatever happens i'm going to keep control of the business and did you have a refined marketing uh, plan or scheme at this point yeah oh yeah yeah definitely yeah uh i mean we had to bring in the investors we brought in so i had a a a business plan that was laid out how and you know, we were at the point of breaking even at that point. So it was an easy investment in some ways to people because, you know, they put their money in. The company's pretty much at break even. It mightn't be fantastic, mightn't turn out to be fantastic, but you're not likely to lose your money. And if it did take off, you make a lot of money, mm-hmm. which is exactly what happened to the investors. I mean, you know, they got returns of nearly 100 times their investment. But there was one specific, not just the, the Blue Ocean strategy that you had, you also mm. had the, was the 2020... Oh, that uh, was the rules, yeah. I, I kind of devised, I, I, that, that came a little bit later, but what I, what I kind of um, figured, I was looking, you know, yeah, I did an MBA and all that sort of stuff, and um, uh, so I had a good handle on finance, but I, it wasn't what really, um, you know, turned me on working on spreadsheets and what have you. So I, I had to refine, um, I had to refine metrics in finance down to a quick check level to see how healthy the business was, and so. Um, I looked at companies, I went out and started looking at, at companies and how they were valued by the markets um, and um, tried to figure, you know, there's loads of different ways of making company valuations. There's like several different methods of doing it. But what it all boils down to, I, uh, you know, so you can go and you can read whole books on how to value businesses. But what I figured out was, um, if you, by taking a look at enough companies in the medtech sector that, that there was a kind of rules that applied that were simply multiples of your revenue or multiples of your um, profitability and then combine that with your growth rate. Mm. Because if a company, say, is trading at... If a company has revenue of, um, I don't know, say a company has revenue of 10 million a year uh, and it's got 1 million profit... Um, but that company's growing at 10% a year. 
that's not a very attractive um, proposition. Whereas if you had a company that was maybe one or two million revenue, but it's growing at 40% a year, um, it's going to turn out a lot more yeah. profitability over time. So, you know, that's more of an attractive gamble. So you could really, those are the three metrics that you need to look at, profitability, growth rate, and revenue. And from that, you can devise a formula that tells you which of the companies are, are, are likely to What was the set formula for, for Aerogen, so, so very, with, very briefly? With Aerogen, I set it up on, on the basis in them days. Anyhow, we were in early growth. So I said, we have to grow at 30% a year. If you're not growing at that sort of rate, you're not going anywhere. 30% mm-hmm. a year growth. Um, I said gross margin, we needed to be aiming to hit 60% gross margin. And we wanted to throw off profitability of around 20% EBITDA to fund next year's development. So that was the kind of um, rules I was applying. And then as the company grew, I kind of, as you go through different stages, you can't keep growing at quite the same rate, but you throw off more profitability. So you can determine either, you can either throw all that money from profitability, take a cut in profitability and put that money into commercial, more commercialization and grow your top line at the expense of your bottom line, but between the two of them, my rule was you want to be around 40%. So if you've yeah. got, say, 20% growth and you've got 20% EBITDA, that's a healthy business. Um, if you've got uh, 30% growth and you've got 10% EBITDA, that's a healthy business because you're growing at a fast rate. So you know it will keep your bottom line will grow as well. But if you have like 20% growth and 10% EBITDA, that's not good. So it's kind of very simple rules and managing. And, and really, that's what I used to tell all the finance guys. Look, I just want to know when we start tracking outside this matrix. So you plot it. And I say, once we start moving outside of any of those, you talk to me and then we adjust. But otherwise, just keep going. Uh, and so that's really how I grew the business. I think it was when the major players in the ventilator world started to recognize that your technology was the best on the market. Well, to me personally, that was kind of the, the acid test that this yeah. is this is what, this is the best in the market, this is what we need. Who was it that first kind of approached yeah. you to, to integrate themselves with your technology? Yeah, you're right, Dennis. It was a kind of turning point because up until then, we'd been a sort of um, a sidebar in the industry. You know, we'd been working away in our own area and we had early adopters and people who loved what we were doing, but we weren't really getting into mainstream. And then uh, we got approached by GE, um, uh, who... Um, G Healthcare, yeah. and they had some new vents they were going to bring out, and they'd done their work. They'd looked at 30 different aerosolized drug delivery systems, and they decided ours was the best, which, of course, it was. And uh, they wanted to integrate that inside their ventilator, a bit like an Intel inside model. Um, and so they phoned up out of the blue and said they wanted to come and talk to us about this, and we said, it's absolutely wonderful. This is brilliant. This will give us the recognition that we really need to get us on a global market. Um, and so they came to see us for a couple of days, loved what we were doing, like the quality systems, everything, seemed technology, everything was perfect until the wrap-up meeting. And I brought up the subject of, well, where was the Aerogen logo going to go on their ventilator or how we were going to co-market? And they kind of looked at me stunned and the guy who was running it, leading it for them said, well, 
GE don't co-brand John, you know. Uh, and um, I said, crikey, that's a problem then. Yeah. Uh, and I said, because, you know, we've spent years developing this technology around Aerogen and, you know, we want to build our brand and, you know, it's got to have Aerogen on it or else it's not going to work. And so um, basically they said, well, you know, we don't co-brand and that's it. And they basically got in their cars and two car loads of them and headed off down the drive. And I think I said it to you before, <laughs> I was kind of watching them going out through the door and then I thought, should I run after them and say, <laughs> sorry, guys, I was only joking. But anyway, they went and I, I thought, oh, man, that that is a big loss, you know, would have... but. I, I really believe in brand equity. You know, I said to you as well before, the two things in a company is how you innovate and create and how you market and brand. And if you lose your brand, that's a key one of your weapons gone, right? And so um, these guys, uh, anyhow, your man, in all fairness to him, about, I don't know, it's about three months later, the phone rang again from the States and it's him. And he said, and all he said to me, first thing I said, oh, hi, Jim, Mike, how are you and what have you? He said, how big does your brand need to be? And, and so they'd gone back, considered their other options and figured, no, we'll get his, let him put his brand on. But, but in, it worked out really well. We put the brand on and then, you know, so everyone knew the Aerogen port was there. And, you know, um, G, in all fairness to me, phoned me up then after they launched the products and it was very successful, their ventilators. He, he, they did post-market surveillance to ask, customers the six things they liked the most and disliked the most of their ventilator you know this new platform and he phoned me up and he said john i have to tell you in every single case people said the the aerogen nebulizer came up in the tops the six things they liked and ge then changed their whole branding or their whole marketing to say that they were the people you know bringing an aerogen to the market and and actually positively marketed it and so it's no more than, as you say, Intel inside on a computer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's positive branding, branding. and marketing of someone else's product. Phenomenal, you know? phenomenal. Um, and, and not just GE, obviously, then you had Draeger. Oh, yeah, McKay. the other. The other they, all, they all yeah, followed suit. They then, all really. followed then. And, and then we started making the play, well, you know, if you haven't got Aerogen inside. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you, <laughs> yeah. So uh, it made it kind of incumbent on the others to all integrate as well. And that made us the global business because otherwise we'd never, you know, as a small company in the west of Ireland, yeah, you can get into the States and what have you and do Europe. But we're in 70 countries selling product. And that's because everywhere the ventilators went, Aerogen's name went, and we sold the product that attached to the end of it. So they would sell the razor and then we would go in behind selling all the razor blades. And that's the... I, I'm so, so conscious of your time and we're going to wrap this up very, very soon. Thank you so much again for taking the time to, to speak to me. We have just a very few niche questions just for yeah. you. Um, John, what um, 100 euro which you've spent which has most positively affected you or impacted your life? 100 euro or even pound for that matter. Yeah, 100 euro or pounds that I most spent. I would say it was probably a little bit more than 100, but it was the... the um, economy class, class flight I bought to San Francisco the second time to get the license. Very good. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, your favorite failure, John. <laughs> there seems to be a few. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think it's important to say at this point in time that I'd say you're definitely um, 
an advocate of failure, that it's vitally important oh, to fail to succeed. With, with, without a doubt. And you've, you know, you've got to learn to uh, accept failure and, and to learn from it and move on. Um, my my favourite failure. Do, do you know, I, I find that one really hard to answer. I mean, I've been involved in um, probably, you know, the aerospace project. It was a great project and I'd love to have had time to revisit that again. And it, and it failed not because of the technical ability or the offering or the value proposition it brought, but just the way the market condition was. Mm. So sometimes you've, I've had failures before that technically didn't work or, or clinically weren't good or whatever, but that was a good product. It was just bad timing and Fair sometimes enough. that happens. Yeah. Timing is everything, yeah. as we all know. Yeah. Um, a book that's impacted you the most? Uh, if I could, there's probably a few. I would say um, business books, you know, Blue Ocean Strategy uh, is a fantastic book about bringing um, game-changing disruptive technologies to market. I picked that book up. I had no notion of what it was about. I was on a flight back from, again, California, a long flight, and um, went to the bookshop. I, I loved business strategy I know from the MBA days that always read books on strategy yeah. and I just picked this book up and um, I read the book from cover to cover on the flight back through the night stayed awake and I anecdoted the book about how I would change Aerogen's business model to fit in with the way Blue Ocean worked uh, we were doing a lot of it but without knowing but but just changed the way we worked so Blue Ocean strategy I'd recommend to anyone for any business whether you want to set up a coffee shop or a medical device company it works um, uh, Crossing the Chasm was a book by Jeffrey Moore it's te bringing technologies to market and looking at the mistakes people make of serving just the, the early adopter market not getting into mainstream market and how so many technologies fail in that gap or the chasm companies fall down. Um, that was very, that book, I'd, I'd read the book years ago, but it, but it um, at a time when Aerogen was doing really well some years back, um, I was feeling uncomfortable because we were doing well, but everything seemed too good. And I read that, I, I thought, you know what we're doing here? We're servicing a small sector of the market that love us. We need to move across into a market that's harder for us. You know, the people that are more pragmatic, that are pushing back, which is the harder thing to yeah. do. But you have to change your market and strategy and your offering to do that. But we did that. I went back, read the book again. I thought, that's what we're doing wrong. We need to shift. And we did. With Aerogen Pharma, yeah. was that it? Yeah, yeah, it was Aerogen Pharma. And we'll and talk about that another day. Yeah, yeah. And then the very final question for you, John. If you had one piece of advice uh, for a person starting out, what would that be? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, if you, of all the, of all the, the um, skills or what would you call traits you need if you want to be a good entrepreneur is endurance, right? It's, um, you've got to be able to endure and you've got to be able to accept ambiguity. You know, that's something a lot of technical people find hard because as engineers, you're trained to, to try and drive to particular solutions through methodology. Ambiguity is there every day in business and you've got to learn to cope with multiple balls in the air and you, don't, you won't always be able to formulate exactly what happens. It's how you deal with it when things happen, I guess. Fantastic. Mr. John Power, thank you so, so much for taking the time out again to speak to me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, 
we'll see you again. As always, Dennis, and if you can return that ball that I kicked over your fence <laughs> two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, John. This was the Dogcast, folks. Thanks very much. <laughs>